The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my pleasure to welcome a fellow dietitian. Karen Collins is an award-winning registered dietitian who takes nutrition from daunting to doable. She has served as nutrition advisor to the American Institute for Cancer Research for over 25 years. She is truly an expert on nutrition to reduce cancer risk. That's what we're going to be really focusing on today. She has a terrific education. She has a bachelor's degree in dietetics from Purdue University and a master's degree in nutrition from Cornell. Karen, welcome. Oh, thank you, Melinda. I'm delighted to be here with you. Well, I heard a webinar that you did for your fellow dietitians as a continuing education seminar And it was about antioxidants, and it was so excellent and thorough that I thought, oh, gosh, please be my guest and help us understand this complex issue. So why don't we just start out first, and let me know how and why you got into this path of nutrition. What was it that sparked your interest in nutrition and cancer? Well, I was interested in nutrition just as a way of promoting health and helping people, and Back when I was in my early grad school days, the idea of nutrition to reduce cancer risk was actually pretty new and pretty fringe, and it was just when the Congress convened a panel and diet identified as an important source that the American Institute for Cancer Research was getting started, and they were looking for someone to help translate this burgeoning field of science, and it was just at the time that I was learning about it, so our paths really crossed, and I've been thrilled to be joining them in learning more and sharing what we learn for all these years since. We've both been in this profession for several decades, so we can look back and we can say, okay, are there some messages that bubble up to the top? And certainly not overeating seems to be a sure way to help prevent or lower cancer risk. And then, of course, the other is to eat more fruits and vegetables, and that's where the whole antioxidant component of diet comes in. So let's go back to antioxidants and say, what on earth are they exactly? (laughs) Well, we're still learning so much about them. I think most people have been hearing that term for quite a while, and the visual that's often used is that oxidation is what we see when you have a sliced apple or pear that turns brown on exposure to air or a car that gets rusty. Um, Those are all oxidation things. And so we have that visual, but it's a little hard to then translate, you know, what that means to what's going on inside us because certainly we are not having rusty body parts. But the concept is that exposure to all kinds of things from tobacco smoke to, to pollution to just our basic body processes, basic metabolism, burning calories to to move and live and breathe, produces free radicals, these unstable compounds is all they are. And in nature, any unstable compound automatically wants to become stable. So what it does is it steals electrons, 
from other compounds. And this starts like a chain reaction, and that's that oxidation, that rust, the browning of the apple. But in our body, what it is is damage to our DNA, which can then lead to cancer, to damage to the particles that carry blood lipids like cholesterol in our body or to cell membranes that can lead to heart disease. So it's the, the concept is free radicals are unstable compounds, and in their process of trying to become stable, they, they damage the body and can lead to a whole range of, of chronic diseases, not just cancer and cardiovascular disease, but probably some forms of dementia and type 2 diabetes, and the, the list seems to really be growing. And do they have a role with inflammation, too, in protecting yes, yes, the body? Yes, they do. It's a, a little bit of a chicken-in-the-egg thing where inflammation actually can create free radicals that leads to, uh, to this problem, but also free radicals create damage that starts this process of inflammation. And so it's like a, a circle of which came first, but in, it doesn't matter because either way that cycle leads to these chronic diseases also. Mm-hmm. Now, I think as dietitians, we both have the same kind of philosophy in that we want to get our nutrients from food first before we depend on any, taking any kind of supplements. But where would you say we get most antioxidants in our diet? Is that where the recommendation to eat more fruits and vegetables comes from? Well, that is what is so interesting about the growing research, Melinda, is we used to define, you know, the, the question is we're learning all the more, all the time, um, more about how antioxidants even work in our body. And yes, fruits and vegetables are crucial as far as supplying true antioxidant nutrients like vitamin C and some of the carotenoid compounds like beta carotene and lycopene and, and other compounds such as that. But one of the, the challenges that as we try to follow the new headlines and so forth, is that you often are hearing foods even rated by a a testing of their antioxidant power. That's where some of this whole superfood thing comes from, is that you can test a compound or a food in a test tube and measure its ability to to serve as an antioxidant. And uh, what we're finding actually are a couple surprises through the years. One is that while that sounds really good, actually these compounds or antioxidants are not just from, by those scores, are not just from these nutrients like vitamin C or vitamin E, but also through natural compounds we call phytochemicals, like flavonoids, and other types of polyphenols, allyl sulfur compounds from garlic, a whole range of them. And it turns out that actually while they do test as antioxidants in these laboratory tests, actually they all these different compounds are digested. I mean, we eat them in a food, they're digested, they're metabolized, they're broken down to other compounds. So what we take in is really not what our, ends up being absorbed and circulating in our body, both because it forms other compounds, because some things are absorbed more than others, and because of how long they circulate. And so these lab tests actually don't necessarily reflect what we're getting. And the flip side of that is that it's not just the antioxidant power of our body, the ability of our body to fight oxidative stress and inflammation. 
it is not totally dependent on diet. Our body actually has a whole range, a whole antioxidant system of its own, enzymes, other uh, compounds, and that's, that system isn't enough to do it on its own, and diet is really important to supply it. It's just, again, that that whole concept of being able to test it with a simple laboratory test is probably not as accurate as it seems. Mm-hmm. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I believe maybe some of our listeners have even heard of this. It's the ORAC listing. Is that correct? Yeah, there are several. ORAC is one of them. TIAC is another. FRAP is another. They're all different ways of analyzing. I think the ORAC one is the one that has gets the most publicity in right. that people might see in a magazine article or even books that are based on it or something. I'm trying to remember what ORAC stands for. But I can see the list in front of me, and I can see blackberries and some of these super fruits from South America at the very top. And I think to myself whenever I see these lists is that, well, that's very nice that they've measured this. But I hate to take one food and put it at the top of the list. Usually what I say to myself is, you know, they just haven't tested the other ones enough yet. Because I think all of the foods that we're exposed to, the good ones anyway, the ones that are not highly processed, probably offer many benefits that we just simply haven't discovered yet. Well, exactly. And that's part of the point of, you know, we're realizing the importance of antioxidants, but we also need to think much bigger than focusing down so in such a narrow manner. These compounds, these phytochemicals that occur naturally in plant foods of all types, fruits and vegetables, as well as whole grains and legumes and nuts and seeds and things like that, actually act in a whole range of other ways outside of whatever they do in terms of antioxidant function to help reduce blood pressure, to actually improve the ability of blood vessels to flow well and stay open. And that's been identified as a crucial element in the development of heart disease Um, In terms of cancer development and risk, these compounds seem to be able to actually turn on tumor suppressor genes Mm. that defend our body against cancer and change the activation of carcinogens. So when we get all focused on something, you know, as the antioxidant is the only thing we're getting out of these foods, we are really missing the big picture of how these foods act in many ways to protect our health. Now, I know that there have been several conflicting studies out there saying, you know, people always want to know, well, how much do I need to eat? And our dietary guidelines have changed over the years. You know, it used to be the five-a-day campaign, and then it was more than that. And it's difficult for some people, especially those who don't have access to fresh produce or they find it to be expensive. Um, There are lots of reasons why consumers don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. Access and costs seem to rise to the top. But what would you tell people in terms of how much they need and how often they should get them these different foods into their diets? Any tips? Well, I think there's several things as we're looking at fruits and vegetables. First of all, the biggest change in risk of of heart disease or risk of cancer is simply getting out of the bottom. There are so many people in our country who don't even get three servings a day of fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And we know that if you can just get at least five a day, and preferably in terms of lowering risk of cancer, 
we count the five as not including the potatoes or beans. Now, that's not that those foods aren't good for us. They are. It's just that in the studies that look at the role of fruits and vegetables in reducing cancer risk, they count those separately. And so the studies that show lower risk, we say at least five servings a day of non-starchy vegetables and fruits. And when you do that, that really gets the biggest jump. Now, for even better health, if you can include more, then that will be better, both in terms of especially cardiovascular health, in terms of heart health, and as a way of helping you eat a satisfying amount of food while controlling calories and controlling your weight. Because actually, weight control is also a part of reducing risk of all these chronic diseases. So the first thing is at least get to five servings a day of not counting your beans or your potatoes. And then if you can add a little more, it depends on your calorie level. For people who are trying to lose weight and aren't all that active and are older, simply even getting to seven a day is going to be good. For people who are really hungry, more active, need more calories, then boy, you know, get it up, you know, 10, 12, you know, that's that's great too. Right. We should take one little break and remind our listeners that they are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are talking with Karen Collins. She is a fellow registered dietitian, and she has served as nutrition advisor to the American Institute for Cancer Research for over 25 years. She is truly an expert on nutrition to reduce cancer risk. And Karen, I just want to say that I love the American Institute for Cancer Research. I have been directing people to their website for probably as long as I've been a dietitian, primarily because they have a wonderful newsletter that provides simple recipes. I find that, and maybe you do too, in dealing with consumers, some of the issues that they face, you know, they see kohlrabi or they see kale and they say, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> and that newsletter, the AICR website, is really good just for, as your byline says, taking nutrition from daunting to doable. I think that that newsletter does that. Yes, and actually the second component to the question that you're posing here today, Melinda, is, you know, what does it take in terms of fruits and vegetables, is I think that most of us need to move beyond thinking about just amount The other weakness that we tend to have is that we don't have much variety in the fruits and vegetables that we choose. Mm -hmm. The average American is very limited in the range. And this is one of the things that I think you're right. The AICR newsletter helps people find ways to uh, learn how to use foods that they maybe don't use that often. There's also a section of the AICR website. The AICR, American Institute for Cancer Research website, is just AICR.org. And there's a section there that's called, you can just click on, Foods That Fight Cancer. And it goes through all the range of different foods that people might hear about, like broccoli and spinach and tomatoes and garlic and berries and all kinds of foods that you might hear about as potentially linked with cancer. And it summarizes the research and gives some practical tips for uh, how to use it, how to buy it, and then links to recipes on the AICR website that use those foods. And so I think that message that we really need to be expanding the variety is is just as important for most people as is the fact that we need to be eating more. Yeah, and I think that with the growing popularity and availability of farmer's markets and even the push to have more schools with gardens on site, really helps expand a child's palate and helps that acceptance as they become adults. You know, I think that's 
one of the best things that we can do as practitioners is help people grow some of their own food so that it's also not so expensive when they go to buy it elsewhere. Now, let me switch gears just a moment and talk a little bit about when somebody is going through cancer therapy. Should the diet be the same, or might there be some interactions with some of these high antioxidant foods with some of the drugs that people are taking? Well, for people going through cancer treatment, we have to keep in mind that every cancer is different and the different types of treatment are going to be different. So no you know, individual is exactly the same. For the most part, if there's not some kind of contradiction, the same type of diet that we're talking about to lower risk of cancer is very appropriate during cancer treatment and for cancer survivors afterward. But that said, there may be some people who, because of some kind of surgery or treatment to the mouth or chemotherapy that affects their digestive function or something like that, they may not be able to tolerate some of these foods and and may need to eat differently. And the most important thing for them is to ask for a consult with a dietitian because that way they can get individualized recommendations. There are special dietitians especially that are, are certified in oncology nutrition. They have CSO after their name. And there are things that we can do to really improve nutrition during treatment. And I think the best thing we can do is to just ask, you know, encourage people to, to see a dietitian and not to struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good advice. Now, another factor with regard to these compounds and foods and their protective ability has to do with whether we're going to consume them raw or cooked. And I'm sure you've seen diets kind of wax and wane in terms of popularity and these the raw food diet has been very popular. And I wonder if some of these phytochemicals in fruits and vegetables, and phyto, we should just let our listeners know that phyto means plant, so that they're chemicals in plants. Are they destroyed generally through cooking, or will they withstand heat? No. For the most part, they do withstand heat, and it really depends on the individual compound and even how it's cooked. So, for example, in tomatoes, the lycopene, which is a carotenoid compound that that gives them the, the red color and seems to have several beneficial effects, we actually absorb more of the lycopene from tomatoes when it is cooked or processed in some way. It, it breaks down the cell walls, so we actually get much more of the beneficial compounds then. Mm-hmm. And there's a blog post that I did on my website. My website is KarenCollinsNutrition.com, and the blog is there, Smart Bites. And I have a video interview with a researcher who works with cruciferous vegetables, And we go through the the research showing that actually you get the most of these compounds called isothiocyanates that are cancer protective, we we think, from uh, cruciferous vegetables like broccoli when it's just steamed to still be crunchy, but that steaming process actually enhances the formation and bioavailability, what we get of these protective compounds by steaming them. Or if you're going to serve them raw, you actually get more benefit if you just quickly blanch them than if you just serve them raw. It's not what people often expect, that they assume it's always better raw. Well, I know that you go to many conferences throughout the year that really focus on the benefits of plant-based diets. 
Are there any components of some of these recent research summary conferences that you've gone to that have been like, oh, wow, this is really interesting that you want our listeners to know about? I think the the biggest thing is that the research is really moving away from a focus on individual nutrients, picking out, you know, particular individual compounds or individual, you know, vitamin C or vitamin E or selenium or any of these individual nutrients. The the benefit seems to come as they all work together. And so even this idea of fruits and vegetables, it's eating more, but it's also that you're not just adding them to a crummy diet, that you're choosing them to replace some less healthy foods. You're eating more fruits and vegetables as you cut back on uh, refined foods. You have fruit for dessert instead of cookies, not fruit and cookies, mm-hmm. um, or fruit and one cookie instead right. of a plate full of cookies, maybe, depending on where you are in the scheme of, of changing. And it's as we also eat a diet that helps these healthy foods and helps us to reach and maintain a healthy weight. That is a really important part of reducing risk of cancer and heart disease and diabetes. And in fact, AICR has an approach to eating called the New American Plate, which you can find right, again, off that AICR website, AICR.org. You can hit the the New American Plate piece. The concept is it's both what you eat by choosing a balance of these plant foods and also how much you eat so that it does help to maintain a healthy weight. And in fact, there's a, a program they have called the New American Plate Challenge that will be starting in September that people can go online to do free of charge to learn step-by-step how to implement a healthy diet and a diet that helps to reach a healthy weight. Mm-hmm. That's great. I have also been looking at things like coffee and tea over the years. And I remember a conference that I attended where I was very much impressed with green tea. And I've since been told that black tea is also extremely beneficial in terms of reducing cancer risk. Any new research on the teas that you want to share with us? Well, actually, the Food That Fight Cancer section of the AICR website that I mentioned does have a whole section on tea and coffee, too. Because coffee also has, for a while, people were afraid that coffee was a cancer risk. And actually, that has been quite dispelled and it's turning out that there are phytochemicals in coffee that may be protective also. So the, the evidence is clearly there in terms of your question about tea in the laboratory studies. When we look at human studies, that's always the part of translation that gets a little trickier. And it's not completely clear. There's definitely potential for very good things, but how much we need and how that fits in is really still being worked on. But I think one of the, the great things about thinking about tea as a beverage choice is that it is a, is a healthy alternative as we're trying to cut back on too many soft drinks that we're drinking. Yeah, and at, so for people who have trouble getting in enough water, just to have something fun and different as a beverage choice, it's certainly got, it's an excellent choice and the potential is there. We'll learn more through the years what it can really do in terms of reducing cancer risk. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that. I think that, and you probably have some suggestions, too, to leave our listeners with, but I want to throw out a suggestion, and that is if you can do one thing in your diet, in addition to eating more servings of fruits and vegetables, certainly, but I would say cutting out soft drinks 
whether they be diet or caloric, would be a really smart move in terms of reducing all kinds of risk, cancer and beyond. Would you agree, or is there something you you would add to that? Well, I think clearly the sugary drinks of any kind, whether it's right. soda or even like the sweetened teas, the sweetened coffee drinks, there's a this range of, of sugary drinks is is really a pretty pretty pervasive energy drinks. I mean, it's it's a very broad category, and it is supplying a range of a load of sugar, a load of calories, and and just taking up way too much room in a in an eating pattern. Uh, to me, I think the crucial thing is to just think about at each meal if you can can boost a little more of the protective foods, the fruits and vegetables and whole grains, a little less of the foods that are not so healthy like a, a refined grain or too much red meat, That and, and spreading these fruits and vegetables throughout the day. The evidence really is the compounds don't last all that long, so the more you spread them through the day, the better it is. To know that there are many ways to eat healthfully. There's not one perfect eating pattern. We need to quit trying to look at which is the best way. There are a whole lot of ways to eat badly, and there are a whole lot of ways to eat healthfully, and to know that you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the comments that was made during the webinar that you gave actually had to do with red meat. And that's been on the list of foods of concern for a long time. And at first we thought, well, you know, maybe it's the processing of the meat. And I don't remember if you're the one that addressed this, but it had to do with iron. And I thought that was very interesting. I don't know if you want to share anything about that. Well, sure, I briefly can. One of the misconceptions is people have heard about red meat in the sense of heart disease, and they think of it in terms of fat. So they think, oh, fatty meat, that's bad. But if I choose lean red meat, that's you know going to be healthy. Well, that is lower in saturated fat then. But in terms of cancer risk, it does not seem to be the fat that's the problem. It is the higher heme iron content. It's not all iron. It's a particular form of iron that is what gives red meat its red color. And that seems to create damage to the colon from within, uh, damaging cells and creating formation of compounds that seem to damage the digestive tract. And so it's not that... For people who want to eat red meat, the recommendation from the American Institute for Cancer Research is not necessarily to give it up, but is that we do need to limit it to no more than 18 ounces a week. Mm -hmm. Karen, we only have a minute left. I knew that our time would fly. We could talk about all kinds of (laughs) cancer-preventive diets and foods, but... Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with, whether it comes to, you know, about the antioxidant discussion or cancer and diet in general, a charge or a piece of information that I may not have touched on that you'd like to share? Well, hopefully we've covered the the major pieces of it. I I would just emphasize that it is this plant-focused eating pattern that is associated very clearly with lower risk of heart disease, with lower risk of cancer. A lot of the studies look only at mortality rates. And in our country today, we can treat a lot of these things. So it's not just the mortality rates that are the most significant in my mind. When we look at the medical costs associated with these diseases, we want to reduce the risk of it and not have to have these diseases. And the the message is that when you've got a healthy pattern of eating that's focused on fruits, vegetables, whole grains, limiting sweets, limiting meats, and then in an amount that support a healthy weight, you really can make a difference. So I hope that people will go to the AICR website to find out more about how to put that in place 
And I'd love to have you join me on my blog at Smart Bites on the KarenCollinsNutrition.com website. Oh, that's terrific. Karen, thank you so much for being my guest. We've been speaking with Karen Collins, registered dietitian and advisor to the American Institute for Cancer Research. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank Karen very much for carving out time in your day to be with us. Oh, thank you for including me. 